You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Antonio, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I've got to tell you all I am very excited about the story on which we are about to embark. It's got everything that I love in a good pirate story. Exploration of the unknown world. Intrigue and magic. Sex, violence, and an overriding theme of the desire for and the search for freedom. And that story begins with the crew of the Signet. This is episode 122, Signet. I talk a big egalitarian game about the common man, the regular crewman, the everyday pirates who did the nitty-gritty work of piracy. It's not all about captains and admirals, right? But thus far it's been mostly about captains and admirals. It's partly a symptom of the sources, You know, Alexander Exquimelin wasn't detailing the life of the carpenter on board his ship, and in a lot of ways that's a shame for us. Basil Ringrose didn't do it either, really. But William Dampier, on the other hand, he takes the time. And I wonder why. Dampier was just a different kind of writer, and he was writing about something different. He was writing about his experiences on a certain voyage— Ringrose and Exquimelin were writing about their experiences from a larger vantage point. But even more than that, I think it was financial. By the time Dampier published A New Voyage Round the World, pirate stories were big business. Publishers were ravenous for new pirate tales. The Buccaneers of America was a sensation, published in more than a dozen different languages. It took the world by storm. The Adventures of Bartholomew Sharp was less successful, but a big hit in England. And remember, this was the late 1600s. Think about the options you had when you went to your local bookshop. Poetry and Shakespeare. Paradise Lost by Milton was a big hit. If you lived in Spain or had access to Spanish books, you could buy Don Quixote, which is great, and you had the Bible. And you know, that's all beautiful and important, and even revolutionary literature, but... (sighs) And in England, you could buy the stories of King Arthur and his knights, or Robin Hood and his merry men, and they were popular, but 
They were kind of old hat at that point, right? Pirate stories, on the other hand, were new and exciting, and they had what people really want in a good story, even if they don't want to admit it. Blood and booze and boobs. I mean, you couldn't just publish stories in which violent, drunken men murder Spaniards and seduce innocent women. That would be immoral. Instead, you published journalism about those violent, drunken men who murdered Spaniards and seduced innocent women. And they sold very, very well. Beyond the outrage and the pearl-clutching, there was something about those stories that was titillating and exciting, a little bit dangerous. It reminds me in a lot of ways of James Bond. I mean, think about it. Here was an Englishman from a moderately well-off section of society that traveled to far distant parts of the globe where he engaged in violent murder, drinking a lot, and seducing innocent women. It's a way for people who are stuck in the humdrum of everyday life to read about something exciting that they might just be able to take part in if circumstances were slightly different. And then along comes William Dampier with a manuscript that promises to be the next bestseller, full of blood and boobs and booze, everything that the people really wanted. And then you read it. There are pages and pages of wind patterns, endless descriptions of the different kind of penguins and sea turtles he sees. I mean, that might be important, but it's not exactly going to fly off the shelves. And here's the thing, we actually have several different editions of Dampier's work. The first edition to which we have any access at all are his unpublished journals. And those are kind of boring. They're a bit technical and cumbersome. And the crew in that unpublished journal is somewhat understated. Sometimes they drink too much and fight too much and gamble too much, but for the most part they're men who do their jobs. Then we see the first published edition of A New Voyage Round the World, and it's more fun. It's got all of the blood and booze and boobs that plants crave, and it's got characters. Not the relatively subdued characters from the unpublished journals. Now they're rowdy, drunk, lecherous, charming, violent pirates. In short... The characters become what Dampier's publishers were looking for, and it might be true to what they actually were, but not what Dampier was intending to write. And that's lucky for us, because we finally get a story with a real cast. Look at the story of Dracula. The character of Dracula is a character with which most people are familiar, as is, say, Captain Morgan. But the story of Dracula is much more rich due to the inclusion of the secondary characters. What is the story of Dracula without Jonathan Harker and Mina Murray and Abraham Van Helsing? Pirate stories are much the same way. They're a bit technical when you don't have a full, fleshed-out cast of characters. Over the following weeks, we'll be sticking pretty close to the crew of the Signet. We'll get to know many of the names of those on board pretty well. I'm not just going to dump all of those names here at the beginning, though. I do, however, want to introduce a few of these starring roles in the drama that's to unfold. First and foremost, there's the captain of the Signet, Charles Swan. We've talked about him before, but let's paint a picture of who he was, beyond the facts and figures. 
According to that first published account, Captain Swan is a jolly, boisterous, fat, ruddy-cheeked Englishman. I don't know why, but I picture him bald, with a bushy salt-and-pepper mustache, in a striped Victorian nightgown complete with a pointy cap and a candlestick, kind of like a fat Ebenezer Scrooge. He was a one-time privateer that served under Henry Morgan at Panama. He turned those profits into a successful career as a London merchant, and that former privateering experience is why he was chosen by a coalition of London investors to trade their goods on the Signet in the Americas. And remember, Signet wasn't his ship, he was merely hired to captain her. And then we have Dampier, and we've talked quite a bit about him already. He was a buccaneer, he was a naturalist, and he was a scientist who influenced Charles Darwin. His job on board the Signet, though, is a bit ambiguous. He would occasionally serve as a navigator and a cartographer, but it seems that he wasn't really part of the crew, that instead he was more of a gentleman passenger who paid his way through a bit of work. And we mustn't forget that I think, and I have argued, that Dampier may have been hired by shadowy agents in the court of King Charles II. You know, Lord Muckety-Muck could have slipped Dampier a purse of gold at some point. Lord High Admiral So-and-So might have given Dampier a secret mission. This anonymous individual, if they did exist, and we'll call him hypothetically, I don't know, James, might have sent agents to Peru only a few years before the first Pacific adventure in a bid to explore the coast there, but he was turned around, which is why they had to hire a crew of pirates to do it without starting a war. You can hear me go way down that rabbit hole in a bunch of other episodes, though. Right now I want to talk about the crew of the Signet. There are a few other sailors that we need to keep our eyes on. There's Mr. Harthrop. And actually, Harthrop wasn't a sailor at all. He was a factor. Kind of a lawyer and accountant who was representing the investors back in London who paid for this whole voyage. His job was to protect their interests and their goods. Now, the position of factor on board a lot of private merchant voyages, such as this one, was often equal or even sometimes superior to the captain. The captain was still in charge of running the ship and such, but the factor would make the decisions about where they would call, how long they would stay, and what they carried on board. As you might imagine, this could lead to some tension and conflicts. You know, if a factor wanted to stick around a port until certain goods became available, or maybe until prices became more favorable, well, that was his prerogative. But that could take time. And if the time that they would spend in port clashed with the realities of wind and tides and supplies, well, a compromise would have to be reached. And often that compromise was less of a compromise and more a threat of imminent violence. As in, we're staying in Calcutta until the silk merchants arrive. And then a dozen or so sailors with sharp knives show up to inform the factor that they do not intend to stay in Calcutta a day longer. The factor, on the other hand, might just spend the rest of his life there. It was a highly paid position, to be sure, but it wasn't without hazards. 
And believe me, you didn't want to be the one rich lawyer businessman on board when the crew mutinies and turns pirate. Then we need to mention the ship's pilot. He was a gruff, seasoned, experienced sailor named John Reed. Now, we don't know a lot about John Reed, historically speaking, but from the text we can gather quite a bit about his character. To me, the word that best describes him is competent, and not in the slightly snarky way that people these days say competent, just a really good sailor. He knew how to do just about everything on board a sailing vessel, and you might not want him cooking meals or tending wounds, but in a pinch, he could do either. Carpenter, gunner, boatswain, navigator, pilot, captain even, he could and had done it all. And what's more, John Reed was a sailor's sailor. He wasn't some fat London merchant, he wasn't a rich lawyer, and he wasn't a book-reading, ink-stained fop. He was a sailor, through and through. And there's one thing that I want you to keep in the back of your mind here. I'm not saying that it's the case, but this sailor was named John Reed. And what other pirate do we know of named Reed? We haven't met her on the show yet, but Mary Reed was born in 1685. Mary Reed's father was an English sailor who left England in 1684 on a merchant voyage. He never returned from that voyage, but rumor says that he turned pirate. Signet, carrying the pilot John Reed, left port right about 1684. Is there any real possibility that Mary Reed's father, the father of a woman who served under Charles Vane and was involved with Calico Jack and Anne Bonny, the father of one of the most notorious women in all of history, is there any real possibility that John Reed was her father? Could Mary Reed's father have been a privateer who served with men who sailed under Captain Morgan? Was he a buccaneer who sailed against Panama and Lima? Was he a member of the Brethren of the Coast who knew William Dampier and, well, spoilers for the story to come, but Thomas too and Adam Baldridge and Henry Avery? Is John Reed the connective tissue between titans and two eras of piracy? Probably not. I mean, the only reason I can even speculate about that is because we know so little about John Reed. But maybe. If you choose to use that as your headcanon, go right ahead. No one's going to stop you. Don't take it as established historical fact, but it makes the story a little more fun. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. 
I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. And now there are a ton of other crew members that we're going to meet in the days to come, but there's one other that I want to mention right here at the outset. His name was Herman Coppinger, and he served on board Signet as the surgeon's mate. Now, of course, any ship worth its salt had a doctor for the crew, a surgeon, as it was called at the time. Some ships had a surgeon's mate, however. And a mate could be either a trained journeyman surgeon or they could be an apprentice surgeon. Coppinger was the former. He was a journeyman who had his own medical kit and knew what he was about. The reason I bring him up, in fact, the reason I'm bringing all of these characters up, especially John Reed and Coppinger, is because their story is so central to what's to come, and I want us to remember them moving forward. The thing that makes Coppinger important was his relationship with William Dampier. They were both educated men who had contacts back in London, and Coppinger was apparently pretty interested in some of the scientific findings in Dampier's journals. And that might have been it. They might have just been friends. But they may also have been lovers, which is a big supposition on my part. At no point does Dampier say anything to suggest that. We honestly can't even conclusively argue that Dampier was attracted to anyone, including men or women. But there is some circumstantial evidence that feels, to me, pretty convincing here. Now, I'm not going to give that away, that's the story to come, but keep that in the back of your mind. Some of Dampier's decisions along the way are going to make a lot more sense if he and Coppinger were in a relationship. I'm going to point those out whenever we come to them, but we could begin that look at the beginning. I have concocted this large and intricate conspiracy theory, this Pepe Silva version of events that gives motivations for William Dampier to go on the first and second Pacific adventures, and I stand by most of it. But does any of it really explain Dampier's decision to abandon his friends and his comrades on board Bachelor's Delight? It, it could. There's no reason to think that England wasn't interested in the Spanish East Indies. I mean, we know they were, but we know they were because they already had a foothold in Asia. There's not really any reason for Dampier to cross the Pacific to get there. It simplifies the whole question if we just assume that William Dampier had a boyfriend on board the Signet. When you have to build this huge Pepe Silva version of events, really doesn't it just make more sense to assume that love was involved? And then take this little tidbit. You know, the crossing of the Pacific was hard on everybody, except for a select few. Captain Swan had a hidden stash of vitamin C-rich preserves, which he hoarded for himself 
but doled out just a little bit to the two men most responsible for keeping the crew alive, the surgeon and the surgeon's mate. They were necessary to complete the crossing. And then Dampier writes in regard to the short rations that everyone was on, quote, I believe that this short allowance did me a great deal of good, though others were weakened by it. I found that my strength increased and my dropsy wore off. End quote. And he gives some possible reasons for this to be the case, but doesn't that seem just a little suspicious? And it could be that his social standing netted Dampier a portion of the captain's hidden stash, but it certainly wouldn't have hurt to have a boyfriend who was the surgeon. So we have Captain Charles Swan, we have William Dampier, we have the pilot John Reed, and we have the surgeon's mate Herman Coppinger. Those are the most important characters for now. We'll get to the rest in due time. When we left off talking about the Signet, the crew had just completed their Pacific crossing. They made landfall at the island of Guam, where they met the Comoro people. They traded with the Comoro people for food, and the Comoro were happy to help the Signet avoid the Spanish who had a fortified harbor there on Guam. But that wasn't going to last. Signet was a large, conspicuous ship. It stood out from the local proa, and it was going to be noticed, partly because there were so few Comoro left on Guam. And they weren't all dead, you know, they weren't victims of genocide, as were so many Native Americans. There were still thousands of Comoro native to Guam alive. They were just, at this point, living elsewhere. See, they'd recently had a bit of a revolt. They'd burned Spanish farms and storehouses and even a barracks. Now, this wasn't nearly enough to chase the Spanish off of Guam, but it was enough to send a message. It also ensured that most of the perpetrators, which included the majority of the Comoro, had to flee to neighboring islands in the Marianas. And when Signet arrived, they made contact with the Komoro who were still on Guam. They traded for food, including that coconut, mango, and rice soup. Of course, Dampier described the local Komoros as, quote, strong, copper-colored, long-visaged, and stern of countenance, end quote. He goes on to hint at the welcome that the men experienced, but Dampier was never all that interested in describing the women of a place. You know, I think that he was more interested in the strong and stern type. But if we return to Magellan for a moment, Antonio P. Giaffetta was happy to do that. He wrote, quote, The women go naked except when they cover their nature with a thin bark. They are beautiful and delicate and have loose hair flowing, very black and long, down to the earth. End quote. Those women, or, you know, their descendants, were the same that fed the crew of Signet their fresh fruits and their coconut milk broth. They were the women that nursed the men back to health, and when the men were finally strong enough, they were the women who took them to bed. However, they did so with a purpose. The Comoro wanted help, and they thought that that might help them get it. 
See, the Comoro weren't happy about the Spanish occupation of their island, and while those that were left hadn't taken part in their little revolt, they were sympathetic. Once it finally became clear that the English were not Spanish, nor were they friends of Spain, the Comoro did everything in their power to bring them into the fold. They asked if the English would aid them. Captain Swan was careful not to make any sort of promises, but he made it clear that they would not fight alongside the Comoro. Shortly thereafter, the delicious coconut and rice soup dried up, the affections of the women grew cold, and somehow word got out of the English presence on Guam. The next time the Comoro came out to make contact, they brought a Spanish priest with them. Swan and Dampier greeted the priest on board Signet, warmly with all of the respect due a priest. They ate and they talked, and Captain Swan divulged his purpose at Guam. More than anything, he needed food. He had money to pay for it and wanted very much to peacefully trade to the benefit of everyone involved. But he also made it clear that they really needed the food and they would do whatever it took to get it. The major problem here was that Comoro revolt that had just happened. They burned a lot of the food and the farms, so stores were light at the moment. But the priest did agree to write a letter to the governor of Guam, and he also agreed to stay with the English as a hostage. Now this might seem a little bit rude, you know, the priest agrees to help you when you take him hostage, but it's the sort of service that many priests were more than happy to provide. And, in fact, you'll still see that in the modern world. Usually the priests were treated well, as this priest was, and this sacrifice had the potential to save lives. I'm always really impressed by this sort of thing. Take a look at Henry Morgan or Richard Sawkins or any of a number of other English pirates. They didn't have a great track record when it came to not torturing and horrifically murdering Spanish priests, and it's not out of the question to think that this priest here had personal knowledge of the piracies committed by these specific Englishmen. Guam, specifically, was the first and last port of call in the Spanish East Indies that ships traveling between the Philippines and Panama would see. And these very same pirates had attacked Panama not that long ago. They'd menaced Lima and they'd raided the Pacific coast of New Spain only a few months ago. Of course, Captain Swan didn't want to be a pirate, he wanted to be a merchant. And the men that were with him didn't want to be outright pirates either. Most of those who had their eyes on a career in piracy decided to go with Edward Davis back to the West Indies. These sailors had homes and families back in England. They weren't pirates. Not yet. But they had engaged in piracy and it's not impossible to think that word of that piracy had reached Guam and that this priest may have heard of it. But Captain Swan sent his own letter to the governor, along with four yards of scarlet cloth, some silver, and gold lace. Now the governor was several miles away by sea, so Swan expected a reply the next morning at the earliest. But his letter was sent by Proa, as was the reply and the proas really were amazing. Three hours later, the governor's reply came. The governor thanked Swan for his gifts and sent along six hogs and two crates of melon. One of them was watermelon. 
He had instructions for the Comoro people as well, to collect coconuts on the island and to bake bread for the Englishmen. Every day the Comoro brought them fresh-baked bread and coconuts, and every day the governor sent them more hogs and more fruit. All he asked in return was a little bit of money and a supply of powder and shot to bulk up his stores. They're hard to come by in these parts. This was an expert move on the part of the governor. I mean, he probably knew that these Englishmen were pirates, and he probably didn't want to send them food, but they did have money, and that was hard to come by in some parts of the empire. Even more than that, though, they had guns and men and the ear of the local hostile Indians. And they had experience at raiding Spanish forts that were undermanned. All the governor had was one undermanned Spanish fort. Were Swan so inclined, he could have attacked the fort, taken it, manned it with Camoro, and named himself King of Guam. Now that would be rash and stupid. The Spanish would of course come to take it back. But who's to say what these English barbarians were capable of? Besides, if that did happen, even though Spain would reclaim Guam, this governor would either be dead or in disgrace. Instead of that fate, the governor sent them hogs. And then Captain Charles Swan committed an act of mercenary treachery so vile, a betrayal so complete, that I'm shocked he lived to tell the tale. The agents that the Spanish governor sent with the foodstuffs had noted an English hound on board Signet, a hound which was much beloved by the crew, I mean, the men were prepared to eat their captain rather than the dog. And who can blame them here? The captain was fat and lusty and would feed them all, while the dog, well, he was a good boy. But Captain Swan was busy attempting to secure a letter of recommendation from the governor of Guam, and he found out that this Spanish governor had an interest in English hounds. So Swan gave the dog away. And you know, I'm willing to overlook a lot of the more horrible things that pirates did in their time. I'm willing to gloss over or even occasionally glorify some of their atrocities. But this, this is unacceptable. However, it worked. The governor agreed to write that letter, which would ingratiate Signet and the crew with the Spanish governor at Manila. Not only would that letter get him in with the Spanish, it would prove to the English officials in India that Swan and the Signet were not pirates, they were here as traitors. This was key to Captain Swan's plans to get home. But the men were still ignorant of it. And remember how I said that they weren't pirates yet? Well, Dampier writes, quote, While we lay here, the Acapulco ship arrived. She stood off to the southward of the island and was in great danger of being lost there. For though the shoal be so near the island, the master of the Acapulco ship was utterly ignorant of it. This put our men in a great heat to go out after her, but Captain Swan persuaded them out of that humor, for he was now wholly averse to any hostile action. End quote. Swan's goal was the Spanish capital in the region. For now, though, what he needed was peace with Spain to continue his mission of trade. And he had it. 
The governor sent one last shipment of food, including rice, biscuit, and pickled mango. Swan released the priest who had been his hostage, and he gave him gifts for his time and trouble of an astrolabe, a clock, and a telescope. These were rare and scholarly gifts for 1686, and the priest was so thrilled that he sent yet more hogs to the crew of Signet, along with a note informing them that the monsoon was about to arrive. If they intended to make Manila, they had better leave soon. As soon as their hogs were salted, they set sail. Next time, we're going to continue on with the crew of the Signet. We're going to follow them to the Philippines, to a beautiful, ancient island that, for the new arrivals, turned into a den of vice and sin. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family or to people online. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.